uh, because Easter is not just one day in the minds of the Christian church, but 50 days, actually, between Easter Day and Pentecost Sunday, which will be June 4th this year. Incidentally, um, the Catholic Charismatic, Roman Catholic Charismatic community will be celebrating a 50-year golden anniversary this year in Rome. And uh, Pope Francis will be at those festivities because he is a charismatic. <laughs> we, uh, Bishop Quentin Moore and I shot over to Rome this past week and um, to talk about these festivities and to meet with Francis. Um, I was very excited to do this, jumped on a plane, spent a lot of money and time <laughs> to get there, landed, and uh, uh, what happened was my name was not put in the, uh, uh, in, in the, to be vetted uh, by a clerical error. And so I landed there and I sat in the, just near where Francis was, but they wouldn't let me in because I, you know, he's a world leader, right? So Quinton went in, Bishop Quinton went in, I sat there. Uh, you say, were you disappointed? Yes, I was very disappointed. <laughs> But, you know, as I sat there, you know, when you get disappointed, you, you start by getting mad, and then you start, you know, you get all that kind of stuff going on. And then I thought to myself, oh, this is absolutely great. I mean, this is what makes human life wonderful. Surprise, joy, and absolute disappointment. I mean, is that not true? Right? So I sat there, and I savored the disappointment. I said, you know what? Life, life sometimes sucks. And you don't get what you wanted. Surprise! Anyway, Bishop met with him, Quentin met with him, and he said they were in there for 45 minutes, and, uh, just the two of them. And uh, at one point he said, the pontiff asked if, if, if um, Quentin would pray for him and put his head down, and Quentin's praying for him, and then Quentin said, pray for me, and they're praying for each other. And then at one point, Quentin started praying in tongues, glossolalia, this Pentecostal thing, charismatic, and the Pope started praying in tongues too. So it was cool. So Pentecost Sunday's coming. So figure out how to pray in tongues. <laughs> Start with I want a Honda or something. You know. <laughs> I bought a Honda. Um, <laughs> the resurrection that we uh, celebrate in this season was uh, absolutely central to the early church. Um, the disappointment of Jesus not taking over Rome, because that's what they thought would happen, but of Rome actually crucifying him on a cross had left the disciples in complete darkness. And um, the cross on Golgotha was really the place where sin and death were brought to a head. And all of the pain and all of the hope seemed to have just centered there. It was a place of utter disappointment, a place of loss. And even before Jesus went to the cross, he, he had told his disciples, this is in John 16, he said, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home and you will leave me all alone. That's exactly what happened. He was forsaken by his friends. But notice what Jesus says, yet I am not alone for the Father's with me. Yet as he hung there on the cross, he appears to be surprised by an unexpected abandonment. In Matthew 27, it says, after three, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, leme sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't know really what happened 
um, between the father and the son in that moment. But something catastrophic happened. Then all bets were off. It is finished, Jesus cries out. He breathed his last. God was dead, is how Luther put it. Then Sunday came, and Jesus bursts out of the grave. Stones moved, lights flashed. Soldiers fell down, right? And this particular Sunday came to be known by the church as the eighth day, kind of playing off the original creation, the seven days of creation. And then Easter Sunday then becomes the eighth day or the first day of a new creation. Now that sin and death had been defeated for humanity, um, they believed a new history could be born. Now, as a result of what happened in resurrection, we can have hope beyond sin and hope beyond failure. Because in the midst of sin and failure, the destruction of the cross, when it looked like all was lost, the surprise was it wasn't lost. It was overcome. Now we can have hope beyond death, hope beyond failure, hope beyond loss and beyond disappointment, hope beyond tragedy because of resurrection. And in this almost mocking tone emerges from the followers of Jesus at that time about death. And we read in 1 Corinthians 15, they would say this, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Na, 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 na. Right? The Christians no longer feared sin and death. Jesus had beaten it. And a martyr people was born. And they followed Jesus without reservation, even if it cost them their lives. And they cared for others, even when it meant that they lost in the transaction. They would welcome the travelers, welcome the strangers, even if sometimes they were hurt as a result of it. They would care for the sick. There were seasons in the ancient world, particularly in cities like Rome, that were grossly overpopulated. Millions of people in just a small area. And plagues would break out, and the wealthy would flee, and the politicians would flee. Even the physicians, the famous physicians, would flee Rome to get away from the dying and the sick. Guess who stayed and cared for the sick? It was the Christians. And they buried the dead. They often died in the process while they were caring for the sick and they would get sick themselves. But they were okay with that, <laughs> is what's crazy. Why? Because death had been swallowed up in victory. Because death, where is your victory? Death, where's grave, where is your sting? Back in um, such a different mindset, right? Because you think about many uh, times faithful people who are wonderful people, but I think sometimes we think that God is in our lives to give us extra luck. Or God is in our lives to make sure everything happens great, right? And well, and protects us from all bad stuff, right? And, um, and sometimes we think that faith, you know, faith is trust. Uh, but sometimes faith is used almost like a control. You know, the witchcraft is about trying to control people and events. 
And they use books and speak incantations to control the world and their own lives. Sometimes I think people think that's what faith is. You know, we, the, we just happen to be incantationing scripture, trying to declare what we think we want to have happen. I'm not saying we shouldn't trust God for his promises. We should always do that. But there should always be a kind of poverty about our heart saying, we're trusting you, but it may not happen as I think. And I'm okay with that. Because I'm not witchcrafting God. I'm submitted to God. Uh, but I was thinking back in 1999, some of you remember this, some of you weren't born, but... Um, <laughs> back in 1999, there was this thing called Y2K. I remember that, Y2K, yeah. Everybody thought the world was going to blow up or stop. And, uh, and I knew a, a number of Christians who started storing food, feeling that the Lord was giving them wisdom to store food and they would buy guns. Uh, some of them I knew, knew people actually that bought property and built little remote cabins because they were going to go out when Y2K happened and get their food all packed, you know, had a couple years of food and guns to protect and protect their families so that they, they, they thought that the, that the power of the prophetic word was to protect them from the trouble that was coming. What's interesting to me is that <laughs> the early church would have had the complete opposite reaction. They would have moved toward trouble, not from it. And they would have stored food so they could feed as many people as possible. Not just their own personal families. It, it seems that we've... we haven't lost the fear of death. In fact, I would suggest that our greatest fear is the fear of death. And our hope is that our faith protects us from it. It's different. The Hebrew writer talks about a people who would no longer fear death. In Hebrews 2, it says, since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus too, shared in their humanity so that by death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The miracle of the resurrection is not that you won't die, is that you're not scared to. The power of faith is not that you always win, is that you're okay if you don't. Sometimes we win, sometimes we lose, but you know what, Jesus is still Lord. This was the result of the story of resurrection, a people that were freed from the power of death and the fear of death. They were the Easter people. We are too. Paul claimed that if there is no resurrection, then this whole thing we called faith is a waste of time. He says in 1 Corinthians, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life... We have hope in Christ. If there is no resurrection, we are of all people most to be pitied. Those are strong words. 
We are to be an Easter people. You see this as an Easter world where all things are moving towards new. The eighth day came, the new creation started. It's not culminated till all things are culminated, but we're moving toward it. Paul addresses this in Ephesians 1. He says, Jesus, or God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ with fulfillment, with regard to the fulfillment of the times, that is the end of history. The climax of the ages. I'm reading from a different version, aren't I? Yeah, I'm reading from the Amplified Version. So maybe I should say it louder. (laughs) That was really stupid. I'm sorry. Listen to it. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ with regard to the fulfillment of the times. That is the end of history. The climax of the ages. To bring all things together in Christ. He's talking about this direction that the new creation is heading. Things in heaven and things on earth shall be new. See, during this Eastertide, we celebrate the trajectory of this history that was put in motion when Jesus came out of the grave. He is risen. The, though things are as they have been, they're changing. There is an eschaton, is what's called in theology, that we're headed toward where everything will become new. So in our gospel narrative from John 20, it it takes place just after the resurrection. Actually, it's the evening of the resurrection. It's that night that Jesus rose out of the grave. And we're reading in our narrative what was happening. We pick it up in John 20 and 19. When it was evening on that day, Easter day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came among them and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So just for a moment, let's... Go here in your imagination. That's the beauty of the gospel texts, is they invite us to step into the story and actually remember, which in ancient thought was to make it present. You remember as they celebrated the Passover, they would do the very things that their ancestors had done. They would stand when they ate. They would have staffs in their hands. They would eat the same food. They were making it as though they were there. And so when we remember, the Gospels are given us so that we go into the room, that we smell the musty air, that we look around the room and and try to get a feel for the lack of light. And remember, they don't have bright lights, they just have candles. And we're in this room, and all of a sudden Jesus, you know, we've just been greatly disappointed because Jesus has died. And it looked like he was conquered. His body was stolen. They knew that. That's what had been said to them. And they're up in this room afraid. The doors are locked. They're huddled. And they're listening to these Jesus stories, sighting stories. The women came and said, we saw him. He's alive. They thought it was stolen, but no, they're saying, no, he's alive. Um, The Emmaus couple guys that were walking with Jesus that earlier that afternoon came and said, we saw him. 
And when he broke bread, he disappeared. They're telling him that story. So they're musing these stories. And all of a sudden, as they're talking about all this and a little bit freaked out about all this, the doors are locked. And without knocking, without opening the door, somehow Jesus comes in and he's there. Now, they knew something strange was going on. And Jesus says to them, peace be with you. This is an ancient liturgy of greeting. It's where our grace and peace comes from. When at the point of the service we say grace and peace, it's from this idea of this prayer that Jesus would say and they would say to each other. And notice he shows them his wounds in his hands and in his side. What's odd about this is that um, he has a resurrected body and yet somehow it's still wounded. And no one knows exactly what that means, but, but what if it means that Jesus will hurt through eternity? I mean, what if somehow that's part of the price of redemption? We don't know that, but it's odd. And then in verse 21, Jesus says to them again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he, he breathed on them. Which means he continued to speak, probably. Words full of the Spirit. And, and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is, this is pretty incredible. I mean, Jesus appears through this locked door, through the wall, is standing there. He speaks to them, shows his wounds, breathes on them. Imagine being there, being breathed on yourself. And this breath is more than human breath. You feel something infinitely grander, right? I mean, it's the wind of the Holy Spirit. Remember the Genesis account of creation. This is Genesis 1 where the scripture says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Sometimes I feel like all of that. And the spirit of God was what? Hovering over the waters. The spirit is always present in order for creation to happen. And here is Jesus speaking and the Spirit's moving over their lives. Very reminiscent of this creative power. This act of breathing by Jesus really reminds us of humans' creation, the creation of the human life. Genesis 2, the Lord God formed a man and from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So here's Jesus breathing on the apostles and it's almost this image of recreating them it's like they're being born all over again Jesus is breathing life into them via the Holy Spirit we read in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says it this way, therefore, if any person is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. We are new because we're born of the Spirit, right? That's what's happening here. We see this happen right before our eyes in the gospel passage. 
these individuals are being born all over again. It was uh, one of the Eastern Church fathers in the early centuries of the church that put what was happening here in, in striking language. He wrote, quote, God became a human being so that human beings might become God. Now, he didn't mean literally God like we're gods, you know, like replacing God in any way, but that we would actually become participates, participants in the divine nature, that somehow God becomes fully human so that the human could receive life that's beyond human life, that is actually a piece of the divinity of God in us. That should make a difference, right, on some level, if not all levels. And, and the, he's echoing Peter in 1 Peter. It says, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. See, godly living isn't about you being good. It's about God being in you. So if you are really bad at it, don't feel bad about it because you are bad at everything. <laughs> I mean, that's just par, right, for the human race, that we're not very good at things. Godly life is life beyond you. So if, if you're, what you and I need to do is not try to perform for God, but try to open our lives to a God who performs in us. Right, that there's life from, you got to find the spout where the grace comes out. He says, what, he gives us everything we need for a godly life through, the knowledge, through our knowledge of him who has called us, who has called us. See, this is always about his voice, which carries his breath, which carries the spirit. He calls us, yeah, sorry, yeah, I, I feel that woo. Who has called us. He's, he's called you. He calls me. See, see, this whole thing of faith is about a meeting of persons and an exchange of words. If you've never heard the voice of God, it may not be in words you can articulate, but somehow if you've never, never been in a place where you felt the breath of Jesus, you have something awesome to look forward to. Something amazing to open up to. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Seekers find, Jesus said. Knockers get the door open, Jesus said. And he says, who's called us by his own glory and goodness, though through these, his glory and his goodness, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. You should slap somebody about this right now. This is like, right? This is slap your mama sweet. This means we're human plus. This means we're human, but we're more than just human. John 10, 10, Jesus said it this way. I have come that you guys might have life have it to the full. He's not talking about human life. We already have that. He didn't come to give us human life. But he came to give us a life of another kind. A divine kind. This is why Paul makes this incredible claim, bold claim in Philippians 4. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
What's he saying? He's saying we don't have to just live within our own possibilities. I mean, he's saying this is this life where we're participating in the divine life is where possibilities are endless. This, this is where you and I can live without horizons. Whatever God wills for us can be done. And we don't have to be afraid of failure or death because of this divine life. See, I, see, I don't think this means that everything's going to be peachy. I'm not suggesting that. But I do think that it means that we can have this kind of strange satisfaction. Irrespective of the circumstances we face. A number of years ago, these archaeologists uncovered uh, some letters that were written by martyrs during the first three centuries of the church and the church's formation. And this is a quote from one of those letters that was translated. Listen to it. Quote. It's anonymous. In a dark hole, I have found cheerfulness. This is a guy that's about to be martyred. In a place of bitterness and death, I have found rest. While others weep, I have found laughter. Where others fear, I have found strength. Who would believe that in a state of misery, I have had great pleasure? That in a lonely corner, I have had glorious company. And in the hardest bonds, perfect repose. All those things Jesus has granted me. He is with me, comforts me, and fills me with joy. He drives bitterness from me and fills me with strength and consolation. End quote. This is a life filled with divinity. Things didn't work out quite like I'm sure this martyr planned. But still, he had life. See, when we face the person of Jesus and the breath of the spirit that resides in him, there's a satisfaction we can't know from any earthly experience that settles on us. And we walk in life as God's intent with a peace that passes understanding. Violence doesn't have to be a tool for us. Whenever you find yourself getting violent, not just violent, I mean fight, fighting violent, but with words. It's because we're afraid, we're trying to control anger. Mm. I'm preaching that to me. A couple more observations from our text. Verse 22, when he had said this to them, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then look at the next verse. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Say, what does that mean? I have no idea. I mean, depending, depending, on, which, depending on which tradition you come from, right? If you come from a more liturgical tradition, this is the role of the priesthood, you know, that somehow... Um, the, the priests are supposed to be involved in 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 sins that it's, it's some sins that you can't seem to break free from, um, and and putting a, a face of putting a human face on God and the priest speaking over you, you're forgiven is a very very powerful thing. James talks about confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. There's some sins that we don't seem to get healed from if they're not ever brought into the light. And, and it, I, who knows what that is for you? I don't think it's a specific sin. I think it's just in your own heart that you just can't seem to break free from. And so confession can be that. Sometimes it, it might, I mean, it might mean, you know, in the evangelical context, 
some of us have really come to treasure and value accountability, intentional accountability. And that's a real sense of confession. It's just talking to each other and being open with each other about what's going on in our lives and there's forgiveness there. I don't know much more than what it means, but somehow the spirit in our lives breaks open forgiveness to the world in a way that's gratuitous. <laughs> you remember Jesus, how he got in trouble? He'd heal somebody and then he'd say uh, that their sins were forgiven. And that's what really got the religious people mad. <laughs> How can you, a man, say your sins are forgiven? Well, I think sometimes we still are like that. What if, what if Jesus is saying, man, because you got the ghost on you, forgive people their sins. <laughs> I don't know. It's cool, though. All right, verse 24. But Thomas, who's one of the, the twin, one of the 12, was not with him when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, come on, guys. I think he was just trying to be pragmatic. Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger in the mark of his nails and my hand in his hand, I'm not going to believe this. Come on, we got to get out of this. Shake loose. You're having delusions. We're, we're just having, you know, a hard time. But a week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them this time. And all the doors, although the doors were shut, Jesus came, one of these coming in, freak out things, and stood among them. And he says it again. Peace be with you. And then he looks to Thomas. <laughs> now remember when Thomas had said this, Jesus wasn't in the room, at least visibly. And he said to Thomas, here, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Now, what was going on in Thomas's head <laughs> at that moment? I mean, it had to be, wait a minute. How did you even know I said that? I mean, you weren't here when I said that. Or were you? See, one of the things you see about the next 50 days is that Jesus shows up, and then he disappears. He shows up, then he disappears. And he knows what's going on when he shows up, and he knows what's going on when he's disappeared. So I think what's happening is in the minds of the disciples, they're thinking, he's with us whether we see him or whether we don't. I think what Jesus was trying to communicate to them is that I am with you. So much so that I wonder if, you know, after the ascension, when Jesus goes up and he's going up in front of them, I wonder if they're walking away thinking, ah, he's just messing with us. He's still here. And all I know is that when this happens, Thomas answers, my Lord and my God. What I most love about the famous Doubting Thomas story is that Jesus doesn't rebuke the one who doubted. I think Jesus gets that faith is hard. And believing when we don't see is tough. And it's especially hard when life gets hard. And I, I don't think we should ever get angry at people for losing faith. Um, for wanting to be able to see before they believe. I don't think we should ever reprimand them or be mad at them. Jesus accommodated Thomas here. He let him see. And I think God does that with folks over time. I, I think he can afford our doubt. He doesn't abandon us in our doubt. He, he gently draws us. In New York City, 
two or three weeks ago, I was in a service in a church there, and after the service was over, a pastor introduced this couple to me. He said, he said, uh, Bishop Ed, he said, will you pray for this couple? And I said, sure, what's going on? And he said, um, he started telling the story. He said, I met them via uh, email um, about a year ago, and what had happened was they had had this beautiful little baby boy, and uh, somehow the child contracted in the hospital. Some, uh, they discovered that he had some kind of a genetic issue. And um, after being alive for about seven days, the little boy died. Oh, man, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. And um, those of you that have parents, for sure, everyone can relate to this but with siblings or whatever, even parents. But if you've had a child, um, a miscarriage even, how deeply disturbing this, but having a child born in the world and losing them is such indescribable pain for people. So I leaned into him a little bit more and I thought, oh. And then he said, well, they had, she got pregnant about three months later and uh, they just had another baby. So I'm thinking, oh, this is a great, you know, that's, there's a whole story in this. And he said, The baby was born 10 days ago and she was beautiful. Everything looked perfect. They're smiling that, that God's rewarding them. And then right before they're taking the little girl home, they noticed something odd about her blood. And three days later, she died. So they're standing in church just days after this. And I'm looking at them and they were numb. And I just, you know, I just sort of grabbed them and I had nothing to say. Because there is nothing to say. You remember when they met Job, the friends met Job? They sat there for seven days not saying a word. Sometimes it's never about, well, sometimes you can't say words. You just have to be present. So I, I just said, I'm so sorry. I started crying. I said, you know, I'm, I'm really proud that you're actually in a church because I'm kind of shocked you're in church this morning. All the ways that stirs up, what is going on in my life? Is there a curse on my life? Is what's happening in my life? And I said, I just said to him, I said, you know, instead of trying to say anything to put it in context or try to explain, I, I you know, I just said, listen, I said, I'm so glad you're here and, 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 and it's okay to not have it figured out. And I said, here's, here's what I love about God is that we're part of others and when you can't believe it's okay because we believe and with my arms around him I said you know what we believe in God the father almighty the creator of heaven and earth even if you can't right now 
We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. We believe that he, he was born of the Virgin Mary and that he suffered and died, was buried and rose again and is sitting on the right hand of the Father. Right now, we believe it even if you can't. And, and we believe that he will come again to judge what's here. And will put wrongs to right, even if you can't. We believe it. And we believe in the Holy Spirit and in the Holy Church. And we believe in the, in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, even if you can't. And we believe in the life eternal. And we just sat there for a few moments in quiet. And they were just, they never really said anything. They just were weeping, couldn't talk. And I, I pulled back after that and I thought to myself, man, I love the gospel. Because whether you win or whether you lose, you belong. And the good news of this cross and resurrection is that somehow every T will be crossed and every I will be dotted and everything that's now wrong will be righted. And rejoice if your life was full of hope today. Rejoice in all the good that you have and give thanks because it is from God. But if you're in a place where it's all falling apart, you need to know this. If you can't rejoice, we will weep with you. And if you can't believe, we will believe for you. Just hang around. And somewhere in the process, maybe when you're coming to the table without faith, just coming to partake in the, in, in the bread of eternal life and the cup of salvation, somewhere along the line, if you just keep showing up and we're believing for you, you're going to some point along the way, you're going to have Jesus, you'll hear him saying to you, here, put your finger in my hand. Here, put your hand in my side. You don't have to fight to believe. I'll help you believe. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. Lastly, let me say why Christianity is so different from other religions in the world. Christianity is different because it's not just a way of life. It certainly is that, but it's, most religions are just a way of life. But Christianity is a belief in a person. A person that we claim is alive right now and can be contacted. <laughs> a person who still speaks and breathes on us. The first things Christians did as a proper thing together was they worshipped Jesus. They believed that he was raised from the dead and that he was sitting at the right hand of God and that he was in some mysterious way God. They called upon his name as the name of God. They were obsessed with Jesus. Christianity is not obsessed with doing things, but is obsessed with knowing Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is huge, but the king of the kingdom is huger. <laughs> As the Torah is for the Jews, the Quran is for uh, those who are Muslims, Jesus is for the Christian. It's true we have Bibles that carry sacred text, but Jesus 
is the actual word of God for us, which carries a greater status than written text carries. That's why when we read the gospel, the church has traditionally, when the gospel's been read, stood. It was the most sacred because it was about him. And even though the gospels are often opaque and not clear exactly, it's that we're going, he's here. (laughs) It's important that we think how we think about Jesus, what we think about Jesus, and how we talk about him with our children. It's important. Living in the reality of the person of Jesus being with us is what being an Easter people is all about. It's about Jesus in our lives. He is risen. Amen.